Word of mouth was getting out that the shift in conversation was beginning. People no longer played video games. They played Nintendo. And Gail ends up ends the discussion by saying, we were really relying on TV and a little bit of grassroots and a lot of placement on displays where the consumer could play. Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast, a playful variety talk show for gamers, video game history enthusiasts, movie buffs, collectors, and other fans of niche hobbies. Now available for YouTube and Anchor. Stay subscribed and notified for updates. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash anchor.fm forward slash video gamers oasis. And now, the host of the show, that meek geek of all trades. Hello, welcome back. Welcome back. Thanks, thanks for tuning in. I'm Jeremy from Video Gamers Oasis, and welcome back to the podcast, Video Gamers Oasis, playful podcast. A both a YouTube and a Anchor.fm series available on Spotify. Welcome to the show. It's a fun, lighthearted uh, atmosphere. Check out my studio. It's an arcade slash bowling alley, and uh, I'm working on on getting a more uh, sophisticated studio. In the meantime, this studio background will work just fine. It's a fun little arcade uh, bowling alley. If you if you see the video on YouTube, and I love to t- on this show to talk about fun stuff that appeals to the gamer and the geek community. I like talking about the history of video games. I like to talk about collectibles, comic books, cards, uh, all co- science fiction movies, all the stuff that the gamer and the geek community likes to talk about. It's a very fun, warm, uh, inviting kind of an atmosphere. Very kind of laid back. So I hope you have your favorite beverage. Your favorite bowl of buttery or vegetable oil popcorn because we're going to have a fun discussion tonight. I'm continuing my review vlog of the Netflix miniseries High Score. Last episode, we discussed episode one, Boom or Bust, the history of Atari. Now we're on episode two, The Comeback Kid. Now, first of all, I'd like to apologize for the delay in this recording and broadcasting of this episode i've been working very feverishly folks not been wasting time working feverishly compiling as much information based on the the episode as possible to give you as much of an accurate review vlog as possible i don't want to give too much uh of way because i want you to see the this episode and the series yourself but i wanted to get as much information about the episode as possible one of the reasons why I've been reviewing this series is because not only do I find it enjoyable to, uh, to talk about the history of video games, but I find it very educational for myself. And perhaps some of you folks out there are interested in expanding your video game history knowledge. And speaking of watching movies and TV shows on Netflix, here's 10 minutes ago, Jeremy, to talk about our sponsor for today. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, 10 minutes later, Jeremy. And I would like to tell you about the software 
NordVPN that I've been using lately. Now, some of you may be asking, what is a VPN? I'm glad you asked. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. It's a service that protects your internet connection and privacy online. It creates an encrypted tunnel for your data, protects your online identity by hiding your IP address, and allows you to use public Wi-Fi hotspots safely. I would like to share with you my NordVPN story. Sometimes, on a weekend, me and my friend Joel will have a movie and a pizza night. We agreed to watch The Lighthouse starring Willem Dafoe and Robert Patterson. Great movie, mind you. Very disturbing, but great movie. Now, it's available on Netflix. However, being someone who lives in Canada, I was disappointed that this movie was not available in my country. What a letdown. And it was only, a, it was only available to watch in the United Kingdom. Now, fortunately, I had NordVPN installed on my computer, and I set the VPN for United Kingdom. After making the setting, I nervously searched my Netflix account for the movie. After, of course, I logged out and logged in before, uh, before turning on the VPN. And I looked on my Netflix account for the movie, and sure enough, we were able to watch the entire movie, The Lighthouse, on Netflix that evening. I experienced firsthand how NordVPN can help me watch movies that are unavailable in my country. Awesome! Now you can benefit from this software too. You can protect yourself on the internet too. Protect your IP address. When you want to watch a movie that's not available in your country, you can use this software too. And there's an awesome offer I'm offering at people. If you want to check it out, get one month free for you and your friend. If you want to click the link in the description below, 30-day trial. If, you don't, if you're not dissatisfied with the service, within the 30 days, you can get all your money back. Check it out below, NordVPN. Great software, highly recommended. I'm doing a review vlog, if you're just tuning in for the first time, of the Netflix series available in 2020, episode two of High Score, and the episode was called The Comeback Kid. And uh, the first person that was interviewed was Hiro Kazu Tan Tanaka. Hiro Kazu Tanaka. Pardon me if I didn't pronounce that correctly. Did the best I could. Now he is a he is a music and sound effect designer for Nintendo from 1980. He worked at Nintendo for 20 years since 1980. Sound is needed for video games because games are modeled after real life, according to him. It's a simple mimicking mimicking of life. So. You need these confirmation cues. In order to feel immersed, you need sound. Sometimes he says that I'll just hear a tune when I'm walking down the street. It's important to think that I'm always on the job, always creating. My job was to create sound effects. I really did have a lot of fun, according to Tanaka. Now, there, it, the movie switches to a... Well, first of all, it starts with Tanaka walking down the street. And then it switches to another scene with... Uh, 
Tanaka Harukazu uh, with with, um, with uh, at a DJ as a DJ in an electronic dance hall, and all these young people are grooving to his music. Now, Hiraka Tanaka's resume includes a composing bleeps and bloops for various video games. And that includes Metroid, Kid Icarus, Duck Hunt, Hello Kitty World. Nintendo had a very free culture back then. There were maybe 17 people working in development. Nintendo is a big name now, but at the time, no one knew it. And the, according to the narrator, Nintendo's humble beginnings began in 1889. The gentleman's name was Fuza Jiro Yamochi, and he began to produce and sell Japanese playing cards. And the, the cards were called Hanafuda. They were like the Pokemon or the um, Magic the Gathering cards or Yu-Gi-Oh cards of the time. To stay competitive in a modernizing Japan, their portfolio expanded to include toys, mechanical carnival games, and eventually into the arcade. But while Nintendo experienced success in Japan, they hadn't cracked the American market, and Tanaka would play a, a big role in making that happen. Tanaka says, uh, Space Firebird was my first game. Next was a game called Radar Scope. And what's interesting about uh, Radar Scope, it was eerily similar to Space Invaders. So it may not have worked in the market at that time. Regardless, thousands of cabinets were loaded into about uh, new, delivered to newly minted. And uh, according to Nintendo America headquarters, where they collected dust at a warehouse. And... American players, they were ready for something new, something different as far as video games go. So a plan was made to keep the cabinets but replace the circuitry. And the brand new game from the ashes of the old game was named Donkey Kong. Instead of lasers and guns, you were armed with comical hammers, your wits, and some kicks that granted some serious hang time. Now, T Tanaka was in charge of, the, of in his computer desk, editing sounds for Donkey Kong. According to Tanaka, I made the sound of Donkey Kong in my second year at the company. I had no idea how I could make certain sounds back then. Tanaka didn't have the fancy computer tools that we have today, as, is, as in portrayed in the video documentary. Things in the 80s were a bit more analog. Tanaka says, So the sounds of Donkey Kong walking or Mario walking would be produced around here. The sound of Mario's footsteps actually worked out differently than I'd intended. Every time he takes a step, the sound changes slightly. I didn't intend to make it sound so cute. And uh, those who have played Donkey Kong, the earliest versions of Donkey Kong, knows that Mario makes comical squeaky fart sounds when he runs in Donkey Kong. Very comical. Maybe unintentionally. So it's just the circuit ended up sounding that way by accident, according to Tanaka. 
even it's just a beep sound is important in games you need sound to confirm actions according to Tanaka otherwise you wouldn't know what you were doing Tanaka goes on to say at the time I had no idea Donkey Kong would become so popular I never had the sense that people all over the world enjoyed these games now Donkey Kong according to the the, the narrator in the uh, documentary was big really big we're talking Saturday morning cartoons big. There was even a Saturday morning cartoons based on Donkey Kong when it first came out. In its first two years of release, the arcade game ranked in over 200 million US dollars. Tanaka was flabbergasted how successful the game had turned out. It was not his intention for it to become such a blockbuster of a video game. According to the narrator, while Nintendo had a high score in arcades, there was a problem in American living rooms. The home console market, once dominated by Atari, had experienced an epic crash in 1983, like we learned in the previous episode, Boomer Bust, with the, uh, the failure of the E.T. the Extraterrestrial 80s video game for the Atari 2600, as well as other lesser known uh, video game failures. So how could a foreign-born company like Nintendo really turn it all around? Enter Gail Tilden, grand manager of Nintendo Famicom. She was the second on the list of individuals interviewed on the episode on Netflix. There is a scene of Gail Tilden extracting wine from a barrel with a glass wine syringe and pouring it into her wine glass. Very evocative of Donkey Kong. I started at Nintendo in the summer of 1983, according to Gail. She says, Nintendo was mostly known for Donkey Kong. I, I don't even know if anyone knew what Nintendo was. They just knew what Donkey Kong was. Now, according to the narrator, Gail Tilden would know. Before she became a wine producer and marketer, she was brought into Nintendo as an advertising manager and rose in the ranks to VP of brand management. Basically, she's a big deal. Gail said, we were focused on how we could bring Nintendo's products out in the U.S. Gail said, despite what was going on in the markets, in Japan, they hadn't seemed to have the crash of the industry. So Nintendo came out with their home console system around 1982, and they called this system the Famicom, the Family Computer System. It was a cartridge-based system that hooked to the TV. Gale says, and it did extremely well in Japan. Not only were the graphics great, but the way the characters were moving on the screen felt more like the experience you'd have with the arcades when compared to what the other systems had done previously. There was pressure to figure out how to bring the product over and to what level did it need to be Americanized or address where the market was in terms of negativity about video games. That really was the big challenge, according to Gale. But the Famicom wasn't exactly a high-end bottle of wine. If Americans were going to buy it, Gale knew it needed a serious rebrand. 
She said, it had a kind of off-white color and burgundy and red. Really, not colors that would normally seem like either electronic or kid light. It had, according to the narrator, had to be sleek and sexy. Less family station wagon and more DeLorean. Gail then said, so the designers of, Amer of Nintendo America created the advanced video game system we know today, sleek and silver, low profile, and it was very beautiful. It also would have been very expensive and put the product at a much higher price point. Gail said, Japan came back with a design, and we kind of called it the box for a while because we thought that it was not sleek and boxy. The combinations of the Nintendo of America industrial design team working with them ended up with a gray, with gray and red product. According to the narrator, and with that, the Nintendo Entertainment System, nicknamed the NES, had been born. The system was released in a single test market, New York City, 1985 ho holiday season. The strategy was simple. If you can make it in Big Apple, you can make it anywhere. But while the NES didn't score super high on these scale sales charts, it did, not, it did well for a nationwide release. Word of mouth was getting out that the shift in conversation was beginning. People no longer played video games. They played Nintendo. And Gail ends, up, ends the discussion by saying, we were really relying on TV and a little bit of grassroots and a lot of placement on displays where the consumer could play. Enter Jeff Hansen. Now, Jeff Hansen portrayed in the interview is a, I, I would assume, uh, late 20s, early 30s young man. But uh, according to his story, he was in the, store, in the uh, original account, he was 10-year-old Jeff Hansen, a player and contender for something new Nintendo had up their sleeves. According to Jeff, growing up, for whatever reason, everybody came to our house to play video games. I can definitely relate to that. When I had the Nintendo Entertainment System, I had suddenly had all these new friends popping up out of the work, woodwork, wanted to come over <laughs> to play, play games with me. Like, wow, I suddenly made all these friends out of nowhere. And some of the games that he played with his friends were Master Blaster, Mario Brothers, and Kid Nicky. Games that just bring back immediate memories to me, according to Jeff. Now Jeff proceeds to pull out a drawer in the interview with NES controllers, light gun, and power gloves. He poses with his equipment, sort of uh, almost with some sound effects, musical sound effects, uh, to add drama to the, uh, the image. And he says, I don't know that I ever saw myself as somebody who excelled at, as video game, at video games. We really didn't know that I was anything out of the ordinary until I actually started playing for the Nintendo competition. In 1990, the Power Fest Tour. Now that Power Fest Tour was a multi-city tour across America with two goals. Number one, to showcase hot new games for people to try and buy. Number two, to hold a competition to find the greatest Nintendo players alive. According to Hansen, 
I was very excited. I told my parents about it immediately. My dad was, I don't know if it was hesitation or not, but he agreed to come with me to the Power Fest for Salt Lake City. And it was awesome. Hansen said they called it the Nintendo World Championship 1990. The prizes for winning was a $10,000 savings bond, a Geo Metro convertible car, and a big screen TV. And then, obviously, the trip to Universal Studios Hollywood. I mean, obviously, I was excited. But it was all about the prizes, honestly. Well, Jeff was being honest about it, at least. He shows us his old NES console, covered with Super Mario Bros. 2 character stickers, and he inserts a special 1990 Nintendo Competition game cartridge. He said the competition was made up of this one cartridge. They had a whole bunch of them set up there. And the cartridge had Super Mario Brothers, Rad Racer, and Tetris. According to the narrator, if the player could master those games and win in a participating city, they would be flown to Universal Studios Hollywood to compete in the final competition. And, we, and there's a footage of the original competition with the MC saying, first round of competition now underway. And Jeff says, even though I hadn't played Tetris much at all, that was one game that was required playing in the competition that Jeff was not familiar with. The MC announces, 4,200 from Jeff Hansen, unbelievably close. Hansen remarks, my scores were high and everybody was really excited. MC continues, 9,700 for Jeff Henson. And there's a sound of, I think his dad saying, yay. Hansen's, Hansen remarked, really, it was kind of a roller coaster ride. A lot of applause, a lot of cheering. Jeff said, I got third place for Salt Lake City. And he says, you know, it wasn't good enough to win the city. But that win made him gave him the prize and the third prize was a game boy which was also that also came with tetris and then game boy I, I remember when it first came out uh the game boy it was one of the hottest uh, nintendo new products that came out since the nes it was portable and it had an interchangeable cartridge and there was a lot of a lot of hype a lot of advertising with it it shows an advertisement of a predator Robocop-like character beaming, beaming, uh, beaming down like Star Trek, with uh, shooting a uh, I don't know, shooting a, the, the the cartridge at the boy who plays the the Game Boy, and he starts having a great time playing Tetris. Very a lot of hype during that time. It was a very exciting. Uh, you had to be there. It's kind of you had to be there kind of moment. It was a very exciting moment. First interchangeable cartridges in a portable game system ever. Now, Hansen goes on to say, that's when I kind of fell in love with Tetris. I would play Tetris all day long and played it over and over again, again, over. When you do that, those pieces are just moving through your mind all the time. And it shows uh, Jeff, in addition to playing the original Tetris game, he's also assembling these Tetris blocks that light up when you interlock them together. He says, even when I'm sleeping, I'm dreaming about Tetris pieces. 
I'm trying to figure out how can I put it all together to solve the puzzles in my mind. I remember playing Tetris when it first came out. A lot of fun, very challenging, but it, it is very addictive. Once you get uh, the hang of it, you have to inter make those puzzles interlock like a like a jigsaw puzzle, and they come down a uh, come down a narrow uh, column. But you've got to be careful not to let them pile up to the top, or else you lose you lose the game. You have to make sure that they all line up on the bottom at each layer, and they have to be a complete layer. Jeff said, I'm trying to figure out how can I put it all together to solve the puzzles in my mind. Narrator makes a comment. Jeff had lost in his hometown of Salt Lake City, but after but a summer uh, draining AA batteries playing Tetris had leveled up his skills, and his parents noticed. He got better. Jeff Hansen says, my mom is very competitive, and she brags about her kids. She knew, she knows that there was something special there. Hansen goes on to say, and so she and my dad convinced, convinced each other that we were going to just give it one more shot, just one more shot. There was one last city, according to the narrator, called the Power Fest Tour, and one last chance to make it to the finals. Tampa, Florida, over 2,000 miles away. Hansen says, I don't think that I really grasped the whole picture and whether there was really any chance that I could win the whole thing. The MC announces in the recording of the original broadcast, three, two, one, here we go. Hansen says, the competition started and I put my whole heart and soul into it. The MC says, yes, Tetris. Hansen goes on to say, there was a lot of people there who wanted to win. You know, this is your last shot. The MC announces in this recording, ladies and gentlemen, just look at those scores. Hansen remarks, if you don't make it in this, you're kind of out. And who knows if Nintendo ever was going to do this again. The MC continues to, to announce, if anything was any closer than this, I have not yet seen it. Hansen goes on to say, I don't know how I was able to keep my nerves straight. And it sh the footage of the original video shows uh, Jeff playing Tetris, and there's a big, large screen TV, flat screen, broadcasting Tetris and showing the entire game being played on a large screen for the 90s. That was, pretty, that was a big deal. The MC remarks, running away with 3,900 points, Jeff Hansen. Yeah, everyone, the crowd goes wild. And Hansen remarks, and then somehow I was able to win. The narrator makes a comment, with a high score in Tampa, Jeff secured himself a coveted spot in the finals. Jeff Hansen, Salt Lake City, Utah, champion 11 and under, Tampa, where he would face off against the top Nintendo players in his age group from across the country. Jeff Hansen says, there was only one week after I won the Tampa competition, but for the actual final competition in Hollywood at Universal Studios, I really didn't have a lot of time to practice. And as we, as we know, there's a list of games to play. Super Mario Brothers, you had to get 50 coins 
to win through that level. You literally want to get to Tetris as fast as possible. First the Super Mario Brothers, Rad Racer, I believe, and then get to Tetris. And that was the that was the main thing. If you if you can't win Tetris, you'll lose the game. The competition. The cartridge made you go uh, uh, to Super Mario Brothers first. Then you try to get 50 coins as quickly as you can. And there were some tricks that I, that he that I learned. He says throughout the course of the competition, that kind of helped speed things up. Like dying at a certain part in Super Mario Brothers to rack up tons of coins. That was an interesting trick that he learned. The problem is, he says, it's kind of tricky to do that, right? But Tetris points were multiplied so, so much that if you didn't get to, to Tetris, you basically wouldn't score very high at all. And that's really what I focused on for the entire week, Jeff said. Probably I played, I don't know, 60 or 70 hours of Tetris. <laughs> I have no idea. By the early 1990s, Nintendo had little competition that was dominating the home market. And so there's a great, that's, that's actually near the end of the actual uh, episode. We're, we'll have more discussions of people to talk about. Uh, but I wanted to mention how, how exciting and uh, triumphant it was to see Jeff winning the championship. First, first prize, he got the, uh, the trophy. And it was, uh, it was kind of like that... Uh, it was kind of a Rocky Balboa moment, and it was very uh, inspiring to see the young 10-year-old Jeff win the game and win the competition. Enter Sean Bloom. During the story, he was 17 years old. And video games had came back with a vengeance at that time. Nintendo of America based, was based in a suburb of Seattle, had cornered about 75% of a market worth in 1989 and estimated $3.4 billion. According to the news at that time, Nintendo's successes had, had created a demand for a lot of jobs. Playing video games and talking on the phone, according to the narrator, not a bad gig for uh, the 80 or so men and women who, who work eight-hour shifts as Nintendo game counselors. And it would, it would sound like a job too good to be true, right? Well, let's, let's hear what Sean had to say. Sean Bloom said, so I was in high school. I was at the end of the school year. I needed a job real bad. One of my buddy's girlfriends was going to go and get a job at Nintendo for the summer. And I'm like, wait, how do you, do, how do you uh, find Nintendo here? Bloom goes on to say, I stopped by the front desk and said, here's the application, just fill this out. Uh, the person at the desk said that. And then you're going to need to take a test. Now he said, I thought that the job was working in the warehouse. What kind of tests would you take to work in a warehouse? And I said, well, what is the test for? And the gentleman said, we've got to make sure that you know how to play these games. And I said, wait, what am I doing? And he said, you're going to be the, a game play counselor. Here's a photograph of Bloom. Not actual 17-year-old Bloom, but a depiction with uh, a, a much older Sean Bloom with wearing a uh, hockey hair or a 
mullet, as they called it back then. Pl uh, playing video games at the desk and working as a game counselor. This is what a game counselor looked like. Uh, under example of a typical game counselor, here's a young lady here. That's what a game counselor looked like back at that time. Now back to the story. What am I going to be doing? And he said, you're going to be a gameplay counselor. And they gave him a lot of information to memorize and said, this is what you need to know. And when you're ready, just come back and take it. So he had to do some homework with piles and piles of books. At the Nintendo America Incorporated building, today if you're stuck, YouTube is there to bail you out. But that wasn't the case in the area of the mullet. Nintendo gameplay, this is during that time, Nintendo had a need and created an army of gameplay counselors that had a single goal. For every 8-year-old Timmy stuck in Contra, for every 13-year-old Maria missing several heart containers, game counselors would be there, armed with enough tips and tricks to overcome any obstacle. It was a great strategy for Nintendo. Beat the game, which means mom and dad will have to get you more. But the test to become one of the gaming elite wasn't easy. So Sean came up with his own little cheat code. Like all the sword power-ups, the Triforce pieces, everything. How is, he gonna, how is he gonna remember all these different details to, uh, in, in the game test? Back in the 90s, they had sunglasses, not depicted here, but they were called body glove rubber flexible sunglasses. I even had a pair of myself. They were a, a different material, very uh, flexible, very uh, soft, made of a soft body glove rubber. And he cut pieces of paper that fit behind the sunglass lenses just perfect. And then with his smallest handwriting possible, he wrote every, every heart piece, everything you could possibly think of, all in, in those little shades. And they put, uh, they put him in the, in the little room to do the test. And he would, he would take his shades off, put them down on the table, and filled out. He would fill out his test, and he passed like 100%. Go figure, he says. Now he mentions he does a little bit of a uh, parody, where he talks about he dresses up as a game counselor in his mullet and costume and outfit. And he mentions in the sort of the home video style, instructional video that they used to have in, uh, in businesses for new employees. He says, welcome to Nintendo and congratulations on passing the game counselor's test. Now you might think it's all about playing games from sun, sun up to sundown. And yeah, that's part of it. But there's a whole lot more than just that. Bloom says there's four weeks of intensive training, eight hours a day, five days a week, and it was awesome. Like every day, I'm like, I got to go get up and go to work and make some money playing games. Oh, darn. He said, I had the fortune of training under a trainer called Tom. Bloom said he was the very best game play counselor. He's this older guy, according to, uh, to uh, Bloom. He had... Uh, gray hair, and a grandpa-like persona. He was a super nice guy. However, 
Then he would go ever, uh, every one turn around the table, and then he would just start yelling at people. First heart container, Zelda. Second, fifth, third. And he would instantaneously snap his fingers saying, come on, come on, what are they? He would demand it from the uh, game counselor staff. And that made, made, it made him wonder, made Sean wonder, what, what is it going to be like on the phones? Like, am I going to get chewed up and spit out and go home crying? You didn't know at that point. So that quite a story there, quite a, quite an account of a game play counselor, Sean Bloom. Next on the list, we have the legendary Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator behind Mario. Now, Gail Tilden tells a story. According to the narrator first, the list of games Sean would have to master was only getting longer. The legions of eager players were consumed by one mission. Finish the game and get more. Now, according to Gail, she said, Mr. Miyamoto is Nintendo's legendary game designer because he created Mario. Miyamoto's little hero started off life as Jumpman in Donkey Kong. They changed him to Mario later on. He was a blue-collar dude trying to save a girl. He was charming, relatable, and fun to play. He was like an average Joe that you could say, I'm like that person. I can relate to that person. Gail said, from there, Miyamoto developed Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda, and he put his mark on many other characters and franchises. He really does have that Spielberg-type touch, according to Gail. He really can gauge what's going to make something fun. According to the narrator, Miyamoto's creations are still being made into games today. But despite those successes, he could have gone down a very different way when Nintendo's flagship game, Donkey Kong, got hauled into court. Enter John Kirby. He was the lawyer that defended Nintendo and the original Donkey Kong. Betrays uh, the video recorded. He was living in his palatial two-floor house. And according to uh, John Kirby, he said that, I am not a gamer. It was always my ambition to be a lawyer, he said. I think that people regard me as a very meticulous and aggressive cross-examiner. Now, in 1982, John Kirby was hired to represent Nintendo in a lawsuit filed by Universal City Studios. Universal alleged that Donkey Kong was in violation of their trademark in King Kong and that Nintendo could pony up for damages. Now, Kirby said, climbing the Empire State Building is certainly different than climbing ramps and ladders, but there's a lot of similarity, too. Kirby said, remember, at this time, Nintendo of America was a very small company. If they lost the case, there would have been no Nintendo of America. The stakes were enormous. Kirby, said, Kirby had his work cut out for him, according to the narrator. So he, he and his team started to research the case, which took them 6,000 miles across the globe. Kirby says, we went to Japan, and we spent time interviewing people in and Nintendo, and we did research into new, how King Kong was used. What emerged 
was that Kong had really become a synonym for a big gorilla. Narrator says, ultimately, Kirby and his team found that there were King Kong car washes, King Kong sandwiches, and even a King Kong Bundy, WWF wrestler at that time. But nothing resembling trademark infringement, according to the legal expert, John Kirby. He said, we became convinced that Universal had no rights. Even more significantly, we came, became convinced that they knew they had no rights. Narrator says, after months of painstaking research, John Kirby and his team of lawyers headed to court and all rose for the Honorable Judge Sweet. Sweet, his name was. Kirby said, I did actually have the Donkey Kong machine in the courtroom. And Judge Sweet was a tremendously curious person. He even let Judge Sweet play the game. He said it was a most enjoyable day in the courtroom. He said it was only marred by the fact that there were depositions and affidavits that I, that I had to look at. Our basic defenses was the property they claimed to own. Had no confusion with anything that Nintendo did and that Universal knew that what they were doing was wrong. Judge Sweet got the point. And then I knew that we'd won the case, according to Kirby. And many of us have played, or at least are familiar with the video game, Kirby's Adventure, according to the narrator. And in case you were wondering, yes, there is a resemblance between this lovable pink Kirby and John Kirby. And it portrays, shows Kirby laughing in the video interview. After the case was, case was closed, Nintendo paid tribute to the in the very best way possible. They made a Kirby uh, video game cartoon character. He made him the star, the hero of the video game at the time. And it's funny to hear what Kirby had to say, actual John Kirby. He said, being a humorous lawyer, I said, well, no one asked for my permission. They didn't get a license from me. I think I'm probably going to have to take some action. <laughs> I don't think he actually did, but I think he was maybe he was partially joking in the interview. Thanks to Kirby and his team, according to the narrator, Nintendo had scored a major victory and it paved the way for the Nintendo World Championship 1990 tour across America with, with Jeff Hansen. Now, a moment of silence for the great John Kirby. He died recently in 2019. He will not be forgotten. He was a great, great man who, uh, who shaped history, <laughs> Nintendo history. Great guy. Now, you will see on the YouTube video screen the depiction of one of the best things that came during the era of marketing for Nintendo of America, Nintendo Power. Here's a depiction of the very first issue and it, the, of Nintendo Power. The idea for the magazine seemed to stem from the president of Nintendo of America at the time, Satoru Iwata. Iwata. There was a lot of initial conflict over the magazine since how things looked in Japan for a gaming magazine and the lost entity of the American market for gaming magazines. And they interviewed Gail Tilden again. This time, she talks about her experience with Nintendo Power. 
Now, Tilden worked with Howard Phillips. Howard Phillips is an American video game consultant and pursuit producer best known as an early employee of and spokesman of Nintendo of America in the 1980s. They went over to Japan to work on the project. There were massive cultural differences at play as Tilden and Phillips worked to get everything set up with Nintendo of Japan. Phillips would sometimes refer to Tilden as the Dragon Lady to a certain art director in the Japanese staff. And she said herself that that was my reputation. According to Tilden, she goes on to say, she admitted I wanted it to be the way I thought was the right thing. She insisted on designing the magazine according to her vision. The art director quit out of frustration, but Gail just remarked in the interview, I wanted what I wanted, so that's the way it was. Deal with it. <laughs> so while it took a lot of work and some finding the right stuff, the right staff and the right stuff, they did manage to complete the magazine. The higher-ups in Nintendo of America loved how the magazine was coming together. There's even footage of, uh, of Gale putting together a clay Mario using, uh, I believe she was using some kind of metal wire, tin foil, and plasticine to create the Mario depicted in the in the in the previous photograph here we have here we have the picture of super mario with wart from super mario brothers 2 chasing him down and there's a date it was a july august that it, the first nintendo par was released on the cover the very first issue of nintendo power reached millions of homes it covered the then uh it covered the then very popular game i remember getting it when it first came out super mario brothers 2 giving the full layout of the game showing where to find numerous items and secrets and it was i remember uh i remember playing uh the nintendo power magazine it was a lot of uh of fun having that those issues coming coming to my mailbox uh, every month, and my only regret is I didn't fully appreciate the Nintendo Power magazine when it first came out. I did not appreciate it. I lost them or I sold them off in garage sales. I could just kick myself right now knowing that I could have had a real nice treasure. Not, I'm not even talking about selling it on the market again. She said you can get it on eBay. I may even go to eBay and and get some old issues of Nintendo Power. But I could just kick myself because I didn't fully appreciate it at the time. A wonderful treasure of Nintendo Power magazines. Great magazines. And someday in the future, I would like to buy a bunch of issues. And perhaps in a future uh, podcast episode, we go through each magazine in an individual episode of my podcast. So... Stay tuned for that. I am not giving up on Nintendo Power. I would like to get uh, my hands on an old issue in the future. So I hope you enjoyed my little review vlog. I went to some detail, but I also skimmed over a lot of uh, unnecessary details. I hope you enjoyed my little discussion. 
what was your what was your favorite interview interviewee person interviewed in the in the episode did you like uh heroku Hirokazu Tanaka, did you appreciate Gail Tilden? Did you like Jail, J, uh, Jeff Hansen or Sean Bloom? The story of Shigeru Maramoto, or perhaps you enjoyed the interview with John Kirby, or the discussion of the Nintendo Power magazine. Leave your comments below. I appreciate your feedback. I certainly had a good time enjoying this in-depth documentary. So make sure to subscribe to Video Gamers Oasis, click the notification bell, Give this video a like, helps the algorithm, get, let people, let the internet know, let the YouTube algorithm know that I'm making videos that appeal to the certain genre of people. And stay tuned next time, I'm going to work on the episode 3 review vlog on role-playing games. On Netflix, high score, great series so far, I've been having a good time with this show, very educational, very concise, to the point I highly recommend you get you get Netflix right away and watch the show yourself. I'm Jeremy. You're watching Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast, available on YouTube and Spotify, as well as Anchor.fm, Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast. Click the links in the description below to follow me on Anchor.fm and Spotify. I'm Jeremy. Thanks for watching Video Gamers Oasis Playful Podcast. Till next time, bye for now. Diamond Gaming TV Stock Footage Video Game Screen YouTube Channel RAWR R-A-W-R Designs Video Arcade Desktop Wallpaper Pixario.com Thank you, thank you, thank you.